Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Good to see you again as we continue on with our series on the second half of world history. This is podcast number 15. In 14, a quick review is that we looked at yet another way or another phase of the impact of the Industrial Revolution on Eurasian society. We looked specifically at the continuing impact of the railroads, the various commodities that were being developed, especially electricity, the impact of the first patented, what we would retrospectively look back and call the car. We also looked at the impact of the simple machine, if you will, called the bicycle. We looked at the way the city life was catching up in some bad ways and in some negative ways with the major industrial industrialization hitting the cities. In some countries, as we talked about, the larger population that developed in the cities, the pollution ran rampant. Therefore, there, was be a de- there would be a demand for improved city design. And we talked about the rise of the zonings and the codes. Amongst other things, we also looked at females and Jews in the industrial age as well and its impact in political life. We ended with a review of Russia and the birth of Bolshevism. So here we are in podcast number 15, and what we're looking at here is the birth of modern European thought. Much of what I'm going to discuss in this podcast are ongoing ideas. These are not ideas that rose and fell, and we're going to look at their beginning and their middle and the end. Rather, these are ideas that are surfacing in the late 1700s, early 1800s within the European societies, and running around the world in terms of the impact of their idea or their ideas. So first off, looking at, for example, for ideas to develop, the first one asset that one would have to have or ability or skill set is the ability to read. So within European society, it was no real surprise that the birth of European thought here would be dominant, would dominate international politics, simply because literacy in most European westernized countries was up 85% versus 30 to 60% in other areas of the world. So with the vast majority of European society able to read, they're also able to discuss, to generate ideas, to ask my favorite questions, how and why, and to debate and to improve, hopefully, on existing ideas. One of the first movements to come out of this by Auguste Comte, that's last name C-O-M-T-E, the founder of modern day field of sociology, created the idea or the movement called positivism, excuse me, positivism. So basically it's positive with the ISM at the end, although hopefully you're able to pronounce that better than I was. So within this movement, the idea concerned around human thought, 
In other words, Comte wanted to know why things happened the way that they did. And what he ascertained was that it developed in stages. In other words, going back to the humans of the ancient and middle-aged world, physics and nature weren't understood by and large. So the reasons why things happened the way they did, well, that was just simply relegated to the world of the gods and goddesses. Because humans could not understand it per se, in order to at least accept why it happens, would be to throw it into the world of the gods where humans had no necessarily right to question. That's not working anymore. The idea that a tornado would touch down in one thunderstorm, but not in another. Are we going to really continue to just relegate those reasons to the gods and goddesses, whether they're having a good day or a bad day? That's not working anymore. So Comte wanted to move society than rather just simply accepting that forces in nature were the works of the gods to explanations based on descriptions and a review of actual documents, if known, before any conclusions could be drawn. In other words, he proposed using this process of of observation and explanation to explain social behavior in such a way as to create the potential for more future peaceful societies. It was in a way of trying to piggyback the scientific method, but rather than to using the scientific method as it explained why things happened in the nature of the exact sciences, could it be used to create reasons, explain reasons in the social sciences? Again, notice that his ulterior motive here is to create more peaceful societies. And I just want to take a quick sidestep here just to remind my listeners that war is a terrifying idea, a terrifying reality throughout human societies. Since the dawn of human civilization, when humans started to settle down, there have been, dependent upon your definition of war, 6,000 wars in all of human history. And the more time marched on, the deadlier, by and large, those wars became. Not necessarily because there were any longer, but because of the advent and the advancement of more modern military technology, the more brutal those weapons were becoming, decimating larger and larger segments of society. Now remember, too, that war doesn't happen in a vacuum. So when country A fights country B, oftentimes the bordering countries around those two warring principalities are often negatively affected by this. A significant portion of the younger male population is wiped out during times of war. Famine can hit the continent, much less the countries where wars take place, because of the elimination of the plowable fields that now then became battlefields. Harbors were destroyed. Confidence in society plummeted. The economies usually were wrecked. These have long-term, long-lasting consequences long after the final musket ball or the final arrow is thrown in actual combat. So there is more than a human motivation 
to try to explain why humans turn against one another and go to war. In the same vein, another scientist born roughly the same time period, Charles Darwin, not only born in the same year, but also the exact same month and day, February 12th, 1809, as a future 16th American president by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Charles Darwin is erroneously credited with the idea of survival of the fittest. That wasn't Darwin's idea. That arguably went to his colleague, Alfred Russell Wallace. But Wallace didn't know why that seemed to be a true statement, survival of the fittest. This is where Darwin came in, in his famous journey on the HMS Beagle to the Galapagos Islands, when he noticed many different life forms, specifically birds, that he recognized back in England, but noticed that the way they nested was very different than those back in his home country. What they ate and how they ate also was very different. So rather, Charles Darwin comes up with this idea of natural selection, and that the idea of the survival of the fittest goes to those who are best able to adopt new technologies, new ways of thinking, to put that into new a one word, adapt. Those that are able and are the quickest to adapt to a changing environmental landscape most likely would be the ones most prone to survive when things go south or things go bad. Again, he did not conceive the theory of revolution, but rather explained how natural selection occurred through evolving forces that we coin in the term evolution. His theories, needless to say, contradicted creationism. It also contradicted the idea of any form of a deity being responsible for the progress of all life on earth. Please know that this is obviously a very controversial subject between religion and science even to this day, where it is still debated. And one of the most infamous overflows of this was not long ago in Dover, Pennsylvania, when a high school student won the prize to being able to paint any image, as long as, of course, it was within good taste, to paint a large wall of the cafeteria with anything that his extensive talents could allow. So this young man took the opportunity to recreate that famous picture of the idea of a gorilla eventually evolving through several stages to the modern human being. This young man was an ardent evolutionist. He was, it was impressive work, and that's not what made Dover, Pennsylvania make the national and international news. What made that particular high school in Dover hit the national headlines was not because of what the student painted, but because of what somebody else painted over his artwork. When the school was in awe on a Monday when everybody came in, to find that that beautiful artwork by that young man was simply painted over in the colors of the other walls of the cafeteria. It was simply erased. 
The principal and school board and the school board, of course, were in uproar, demanding that the student that did this deface this young man's work step forward. But no student ever did, because it wasn't a student. It was a part-time worker who saw that artwork as an affront to his faith and therefore erased it. The part-time worker, of course, was promptly fired by the principal until the school board stepped in and a divisive school board ultimately reappointed him in his job. And the debates and the fights then went into a volcanic eruption. So this is, again, not the first and not the last time that we're seeing the clash of creationists versus evolutionists, religion versus science. But remember again, re, uh, listeners, one does not have to negate the other. In other words, you can have a scientist who is a creationist at heart. Wait, there's no way you say, because there was, the theory of creation, as outlined in the Old Testament of the Bible, says the world was created in seven days. Well, that's evolution on fast forward then. It can't happen. But what is the definition of a day? When the book of Genesis was written, a 24-hour time period that we define as day didn't exist at that time. How do we know that day was not 800 million years? Another day was another 800 million years. We don't know that. Therefore, the impact of Comte and Darwin and many other scientists, as time goes on, do not necessarily have to negate the impact or the role or the individual beliefs in religious ideas. At the same time that scientists are knocking their heads in terms of trying to create a more realistic assessment of the forces of nature in our world, we also have the advent at the same time of somebody else that plowed into science by the name of Jules Verne, from, he lived from 1828 to 1905. You might say, wait a minute, I know that name, but I don't know that scientist. That's right, because he wasn't a scientist. Rather, Jules Verne, with his tale called Five Weeks in a Balloon, published in 1863, is arguably our first human work at science-fiction. Jules Verne is considered to be society's first scientific science fiction author. When one might ask then, if that's what kicked off this world, what makes really, what is the key to good science fiction? Arguably, it's the key to almost any good fiction, plausibility. Verne also wrote, which was part of his key to success, is he wrote in the present. So readers imagined that what he wrote as a possibility, even if it was as remote as it was. The key to good fiction in writing it and also in enjoying it through our own reading is some degree of plausibility, some degree that maybe, just maybe, this might happen. So that's, again, a quick review of the impact of Comte, Darwin, and the advent of science fiction. All right, well, let's get back to the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. 
And that, of course, is the negative impact or the negative interpretation that religion, okay, let's call it as it is, specifically Roman Catholicism, is having as they question the ideas here rising up in modern thought. Clearly, Advent or ardent, I should say, Roman Catholics who might never have questioned their beliefs before, after reading the works of Charles Darwin, when in 1859, again, on that HMS Beagle, he ultimately published On the Origin of the Species, where they might begin to question, how did humans arrive on this planet? Why is there no other life form that seems to remotely have the degree of intelligence and powers of observation that the humans have? How and why did this happen? So let's go down as these dominoes fall all the way to the beginning, to the origins of Roman Catholicism, to that individual that once walked in the ancient world on the eastern half of the Mediterranean Sea in the blossoming Roman Empire, this historical son of a carpenter, Jesus, did he exist at all? Why is the New Testament just loaded with witnesses to all kinds of miracles that this Jesus performed, starting with the wedding at Cana where he turned water into wine, all the way to the most impressive of miracles, bringing the dead to life, such as Lazarus, and healing countless lepers, blind people, and individuals who couldn't hear, and heals them, witnesses to all of this, then why not any witnesses to the resurrection? Why does this Jesus allow his miracles to be performed with one or more witnesses, but this bedrock of the Roman Catholic faith that says, sets Jesus apart from everybody else in the line of King David, why no witnesses to his resurrection? Again, I, I'm, I am a Roman Catholic, so therefore I do get this question in class when I cover the historical Jesus in the first half of world history, which I also did in my podcast as well. You can listen to my discussion on those podcasts in the first half of world history on my website under podcasts. Just simply click on World One or World History One, where I'll discuss this in greater detail. But simply put, it's easy to believe somebody and to believe in somebody when they can truly do the impossible. So why didn't Jesus have any witnesses? Nobody knows that answer. But the best that I can surmise, and please know, again, this is only my opinion, not endorsed by any organization or person or institution, but believing because of eyewitness water and turn into wine and other dead people rise that's easy to follow. But am I going to believe that I'm going to rise again after I die the way Jesus did with no witnesses? Then that belief is going to have to be based on something that has nothing to do with science. It's called faith. Faith means that I can't prove, but I believe anyhow. So again, Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church is getting into an uproar over this, especially in the world of science. They're not a, at all appreciating Darwin's theories. Even with science proving some biblical events in the Old Testament, such as the, as the massive flood 
where Noah and the reason why Noah built his ark and Moses parting the Red Sea and other events that actually might have happened when looked at geologically, yet through another umbrella of science. The Roman Catholic Church says, I don't need any of that. The institution doesn't need science to prove what it already knows is fact and is true. Therefore, as a result of all of these impacts and role of science, it's no surprise that the likes in the First Vatican Council held from 1869 to 1870, that Pope Pius XI is going to come out with this policy of papal infallibility. Papal infallibility simply states that the Pope is never wrong in areas of faith and morals. The Pope is infallible, therefore can never be wrong. Does that necessarily resolve the rift inside between science and religion? Hardly. But you can see the way the Roman Catholic Church has historically dug in its heels to push back against the advances of science. Moving ahead, we get to the likes of Pope Leo XIII from 1878 to 1903 when he was Pope, came out with his encyclical, Rerum Novum, where he defended the right to own property, condemned socialism and Marxism, and defended just wages and the right to unionize, and praised the advances of democracy and capitalism. So clearly we can see how the Western world embraces some of the leaders that the Roman Catholic Church has historically produced. But yet you have to weigh Leo XIII's contribution to that of Pius XI. Pius XI, again, papal infallibility, raised a lot of hairs on people's necks. But on the same token, you have Leo XIII who comes out and is able more or less to put people's minds at ease when he starts meddling in economics and politics. Moving along in this same time period, we look again once again, once again at middle-class literature and the social sciences. In other words, Verne wasn't alone. A group of writers was coming out known as realists who looked at human nature as it was, not as it could be or should be, but simply as it was. Modernism comes out of this time period as well, which is concerned with aesthetics and has no real footing at all in any kind of social issues of the day. They, these types of movements influence artists, musicians, and countless authors. In the world of science impacting the world of literature, we also get the likes of Sigmund Freud from 1856 to 1939 in his discoveries in psychology and the relationships of different parts of the human mind. The moment I said Freud, the first word that might have come to your mind was the ego. Well, that was only one of three parts that Freud theorized existed in the mind of the human being. There was also the id and the superego. I'll get into those in just a moment, but on the surface, when I mention Freud, and again connotated with the word ego, even today in the 21st century, there seems to be somewhat of a still a negative interpretation or a negative reaction to the advancements of Freud, that had we not known about the ego, 
we humans might not have felt so self-conscious, maybe ashamed at the way our mind works. But bear with me, because Freud might have also been trying to prove something else different than what modern tabloids and modern self-help authors sometimes want to negatively link to this fascinating psychologist. Simply put, what does the id part of the human mind, id, what is the id concerned with? Simply put, pleasure and immediate gratification. That's the id. The ego is self-awareness, values, and attitudes. In other words, yes, the earth may revolve around the sun, but the world, that revolves around me. It's a negative spin on that. And then finally, superego, concerned with the ideal. On the surface, again, it's fairly easy to look at these three parts of the human mind that we can't necessarily point to with a scalpel. But just the three parts of the human mind that impact our personality and the who we become as we develop from children into adults. But please know, we need those three parts of our mind, and we've needed them going back to humans just as we were beginning to start walking upright. Prove it, you might say. Okay, let's go back to the id, concerned with pleasure slash immediate gratification. Yes, unchecked, that can lead us into addiction. That can lead us into doing crime. But if checked, we need the id. Think about how we feel when we might not have had something to drink in many hours, if not over a 24-hour period. Our minds begin to start wrapping around the thought of drinking water. Folks, we need the id for survival. We need to satisfy those awful hunger pains when we might not have eat, had anything to eat for several days, if not several weeks. The id is keeping us conscious of what we need on a regular basis. Air, water, food, etc. We need that part, the id. Okay, I might have got you on that, but what about ego? Wouldn't we be better off without our ego? No, because the ego, again, gives us our self-awareness. The ego keeps us safe by being able to consciously take in the world around us. And I don't mean world around us, that the mountains way over there and the river 300 miles that way and the ocean two miles to the south. No, I'm talking about individuals that might wish to do us harm. Ego is also about self-preservation and we need it. And yes, sometimes we might want to feel guilty if we're dressed nicely on our way to work but we have somebody dressed in rags that is several feet behind us and then is walking faster than us and is getting too close for comfort, our ego is definitely going to make us aware of that. This has nothing to do with you're better than that homeless person or criminal behind you. It is about keeping you safe. That's the ego. All right, then what about the super ego? Ladies and gentlemen, I'd be willing to bet you, you are not where you're at today in terms of your success. Whether it be in your marriage, if you're married, your single life, if you ta have taken vows to a religious order, 
whether where you're at in your career, if you're one of my college students listening to my podcast here today, you wouldn't be in college without the superego because the superego is, again, concerned with the ideal. What could be? The superego gives us our dreams. It allows us to dream big things. Sure, Henry Ford had a massive superego, but without it, he couldn't imagine the Model T automobile when none existed before. And that's just one quick example, but just the importance of these three parts of the human brain as applied or discovered by, again, the father of what we might call modern-day psychology, Sigmund Freud. So within this podcast today, we looked at the rise of the development in science because literacy skyrocketing in European westernized countries to 85% with the impacts of Comte, Charles Darwin, Jules Verne with our first author of modern-day science fiction. We looked at the reaction of the Roman Catholic Church coming out with the policies or encyclicals of papal infallibility and the Rerum Novum by Pope Leo XIII. We also looked at the impact of middle-class literature with the rise of the realist modernism and the impact of Sigmund Freud. So thank you for listening to my podcast today. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you liked what we've discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.